1: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. One of the things that I've noticed being on the radio in the middle of the night for a lot of people, and I know we have a lot of people that listen via podcast, but there are a ton of people, and we got the ratings yesterday. Thankfully, knock on wood, the show is doing great, but there's a ton of people that listen live on the radio, and I hear from them both when they call in, I hear from them through email, I hear from them through social media, through snail mail, and there's a lot of people that find themselves living alone, sometimes unable to sleep, sometimes going through some very difficult times, sometimes working odd hours where their only companion is oftentimes me on the radio. And it can really be a challenge if you're going through a tough time, either because of circumstances or just because you happen to find yourself in some sort of a funk it can really be difficult to know how to snap your fingers and be happy. You sort of know that's what you're supposed to do. Maybe not the snapping of your fingers part, but you're supposed to... I think most people have an idea that it's not healthy to always be in a negative headspace. But getting out of that negative headspace can often be much easier said than done. Well, someone who has done the work to find out how to find delight in life and fix... What For the whole country, might be a mild problem with unhappiness, maybe even more than a mild problem, is Dr. Mike Rucker. He is a fun expert. He is a very sought after speaker. He's a behavioral scientist, an organizational psychologist, a charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association, and he's the author of the new book, which just about everybody is talking about. You may have seen it excerpted in a bunch of the uh, newspapers the fun habit how the pursuit of joy and wonder can change your life dr. Mike Rucker thanks for joining me on the radio
0: thanks so much for having me Frank appreciate it uh,
1: now uh, you for people that aren't familiar with what the job of an organizational psychologist is what exactly does an organizational psychologist do
0: so it's a little bit like clinical psychology, except we go into workplaces and do broader based interventions rather than working at an n of one. We'll go in and, you know, look at uh, potential dysfunction with an organization and uh, try and improve it.
1: All right. And you began this path of uh, researching happiness in part because of some things that you were going through in your own life, you had just run a marathon. Uh, you had done the best time that you'd ever done in terms of running a marathon, and then you got uh, a little bit of bad news uh, that uh, changed the course of your your life initially for the worse, and then in the long term for the better. Tell folks what happened.
0: So actually, it was a one-two punch, unfortunately. So yeah, having a uh, injury after being a lifelong uh, endurance enthusiast was part of it, but the bigger part was I unexpectedly lost my younger brother to a pulmonary embolism. And so, uh, as you kind of mentioned at the beginning of this segment, I had been studying happiness for quite some time and sort of optimized my life for pursuing happiness and um, had sort of been on this hypothetical peak for a while. And when I got knocked off the pedestal because of, you know, the slings and arrows that life are going to send your way sometimes. I found myself really unhappy and the more that I tried to chase happiness in the way that I had in the past, paradoxically was making me unhappy. And being the academic that I am, I kind of wanted to unpack, you know, why that was happening and come to find out, you know, we've learned a lot about you know, sort of this good vibes only attitude that was, you know, especially pervasive kind of at the beginning of the two thousands, how when you kind of live, you know, this ideal of trying to be happy all the time in psychology, we call it a lack of emotional flexibility when naturally bad things do happen. um, You tend to, you know, not be able to pick yourself back up. And so what I've sort of unpacked is that if you leave, live an action-oriented life, you know, where you're sort of deliberately using your agency and autonomy, even when bad things happen, um, by sort of indexing fun things, by, you know, choosing the things that you want to do, you tend to have better outcomes mentally than you would if you're just always sort of ruminating about, you know, why am I unhappy?
1: So before we get into what I'd like to spend the bulk of our conversation on, which is strategies to um, increase the amount of joy and diminish the amount of unhappiness in people's lives, how does someone know whether they're happy or not? Does everybody always know whether they're happy or not? or And if not, how will they figure that out?
0: Yeah, and I think that's an interesting sort of – get to the crux of the problem, right? Happiness is this exercise and evaluation where if you're stuck and sort of wondering whether or not you're happy, you're not using that energy to actually live a joyful life. And so, you know, sometimes if you want to play with semantics, it's sort of, are you worried about being happy or can you be content with the things that you actually have the agency and the autonomy to do? And so what I suggest is worrying about happiness, kind of looking in the rearview mirror You know, comparing yourself to others or potentially falling victim to adaptation because you sort of, you know, got the thing and now you're looking for the next shiny nickel, as it were. Instead, just sort of being content with the things that you are doing and finding the things that fill you up is actually a better strategy than worrying about happiness anyways.
1: Well, it makes a lot of sense. So don't spend too much time worrying about whether you're happy or not it Just and figuring it out. Just pursue the strategies that may make someone happy. Let's talk about those. Uh, you got a whole book full here, and I do want to recommend the book, The Thank Fun so Habit, How the Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. But in general, what works? What are some strategies that your research has indicated is more Likely to make people happier and increase the amount of joy in their life? Yeah.
0: So, one, a big one, and, you know, there's another popular book out there called The Good Life by Dr. Robert that, you know, backs this up is engaging in pro social behavior. So, you know, you gave a nod that a lot of your listeners are shift workers. My brother, who I mentioned, was a a shift worker in Jersey. He traded, um, you know, uh, on the electricity market. So, You know, sometimes you need to be a little bit premeditated and proactive to make sure that you're getting with the folks that you know you really do enjoy. And the problem is if you start to get burnt out slowly but surely, you sort of, you know, let your busy life crowd out those opportunities to enjoy time with others, it can lead to this downward spiral. We start to see, and you're seeing it as you mentioned here in the West specifically. You know, we're so burnt out that we're – and depleted by the end of the day, we don't have the energy to engage in these activities, even though paradoxically we know that they're the same thing that builds the vigor and vitality to tackle the day. So it's sort of like what we looked at in the 90s, if you recall, when hustle culture was really prevalent Mm. and we were wearing sleep deprivation as a badge of honor, you know, we really – kind of equated productivity as, as self-worth, you know, the old time is money adage kind of bleeding into, you know, what we prioritize. We're now seeing that the same is true likely for leisure so that folks that don't take, you know, at least some time off the table for themselves to enjoy themselves outside of work and domestic duties, they're so burnt out slowly but surely that they don't even have the energy to to do their work. And so under the guise of that, you know, sort of lens, right? It means that we should prioritize these things. So to answer your question, you know, making sure that we're enjoying time with others and being deliberate about scheduling those into our calendar, then also finding things that we kind of mistakenly think are fun. But when we look back, you know, um, they just really weren't. Give, and give, me, an were example. Really,
1: give me an example. Yeah.
0: of So things like doom scrolling news, things like being on social media, So activities of convenience, so maybe you've been part of a group for like, you know, six or seven months, and then you realize, you know, I don't really like doing this. I've just habituated this behavior. Let's say, you know, an exercising class or something that when you go to it, you don't really enjoy it. It's just sort of become routine. These are things that when you replace activities that you really enjoy doing during these periods of time, you you can really start to now turn that downward spiral into an upward spiral.
1: And what does not work? What are some other uh, things that we think are going to make us happy, whether they're whether we're talking therapy, whether we're talking antidepressants, whether we're talking exercise, whether we're talking about our favorite food, whether we're talking about uh, an uplifting film? What are some things that we're all programmed to think may make us happy, but by and large, the research doesn't suggest that they actually do? Yes,
0: yeah, so that's a good question. Um, some I've already touched on, right? So in psychology, we have this concept called valence, and it's just a fancy word for saying, do you enjoy things, right? And so if you're on the positive side of valence, you're experiencing a pleasurable activity, and you tend to be drawn to it, like, I want to do this again. And if you're on the negative side of valence, those are things that kind of repel us, like, uh, you know, I don't want to do this, and, and they're not fun, right? So what gets problematic is when we pretend, you know, we kind of trick ourselves into thinking we are enjoying it when all we're really doing is displacing that negative valence. Like, let's say, you know, something like boredom or distress or frustration, and we're really just, you know, creating an that activity that's essentially escapism from that. Mm. And so we think it's enjoyable, but all it's really done is gotten us out of that negative state and not really – led to betterment or enjoying ourselves or something that we can look back at and go, that was fun. You know, maybe that's, you know, habitually being that happy hour, you know, or again, you know, plopping down on the couch and mindlessly watching TV. So not necessarily like tuning into your favorite radio, you know, program or watching a show where if I asked you a week from now, what was that about? And you could tell me in rich detail. What I'm really talking about is just getting yourself out, you know, of that state of negative valence, you know, at which you kind of tricks your brain into thinking that you are enjoying yourself, but you're really not. You're just getting out of that discomfort. With regards to, you know, uh, treatment-resistant depression, I'm not qualified. I think if you do need medicine because you have a biological predisposition to not being happy, you know, that might be the right route for you. What we do know from science is that 40% of, you know experiencing life joyfully probably is biological and so if you have a biological slant that precludes you from enjoying life that's something you want to unpack with a a psychiatrist um so you know that addresses the other question that you you threw my way
1: you spend a fair, and if people mean you were talking with uh, Dr. Mike Rucker, his book is The Fun Habit. You spend a fair amount of time talking about the role of friendship and one of the first things that I asked you about in terms of strategies to uh, have people be happier was you mentioned connecting with others. You have a lot to say about friendship in the book. Some counterintuitive things and uh, including the the kind of friendships that are likely to produce the uh, greatest amount of happiness what role do our friends play in in happiness and what if you find yourself at a station in life where you just don't have very many friends does that mean it's going to be impossible for you to be happy
0: no i don't think so I think there's always opportunities to make friends, even if you're an introvert. You know, an introvert doesn't mean you don't like people. It just means you don't like large groups of people and high arousal activities. Right. And so it certainly can be difficult. You know, to your point, um, you know, that to some degree, things need to be convenient for those sort of opportunities to manifest. But there's groups, especially if you live in a big city that you generally can become a part of things like Toastmasters or, you know, any sort of affinity group where there's already, uh, you know, a shared interest because you're opting into something that other people already enjoy. And that's generally fertile ground to make new friends. But what we know is that through the exchange of friendship, we don't get just dopamine, which kind of, you know, makes us excited and does make us feel good because it's a motivational tool. We also share oxytocin, which is important for us, to understand that we're bigger than something than ourselves, right? Oxytocin also helps us develop empathy. And so when we get in that space, if we're dealing with problems, oftentimes those problems can seem smaller because, you know, we're a little bit smaller in this bigger thing that we call life rather than so self-focused on our own issues. And so that's why those things become important, One, because, you know, friendships are enjoyable, but two, when we feel like we're part of something bigger, that helps us build resilience and that emotional flexibility I talked about that really helps us, you know, deal with the painful things that naturally come up with life, you know, come up in life.
1: One of the things that uh, you you talk a little bit about vis-a-vis uh, parenting, empty nest versus bassinet, is the family. Uh, a lot of people get a lot of joy from their family, and I know a lot of folks that get a lot of stress from, uh, from their family. What role uh, should people make in terms of making family a part of their happiness equation?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, too. I think you know, specifically for parents, it's how can you co-create experiences with the folks that you love that get everyone involved, right? I think oftentimes when things go off the rails, it's because, you know, especially parents feel like they don't have a voice. And so looking at the constructs, and to your point, sometimes family dynamics are complex, especially when you get, you know, into the bigger realm. Um, But oftentimes, you do have a voice, and a lot of people you know, fail to remember that they, you know, can say, hey, I have preferences in this, especially with smaller children. You know, when parents approach that going, I just have to, you know, take care of this and don't realize that oftentimes they can change up the rhythms and the activities that they're doing, especially if they're not enjoying their time, that they can change their circumstance by simply just reframing the activities that they're already doing. And so, you know, one of the studies that I cite in the book is from Dr. Cassie Holmes from UCLA. And she found that just simply reframing going into your weekend as a vacation so that everyone understands it's a respite from the actual week can, you know, set the stage for everyone having a more joyful experience. So none of this stuff is rocket science, Mm. right? It's really just about understanding that you have a little bit more agency and autonomy about how you go about, you know, the time that you have and then valuing time, you know, as an important sort of, you know, resource as money, understanding that, you know, that's all we have, right? I mean, most of us can make more money, but we can't make more time. And once you start to understand that intimately, especially in the context of the family, right, you know, a a lot of times I use the frame of you only have 18 summers with your kids, right? After that, you know, once they go off to college, you know, a lot of those opportunities to make those fond memories are gone, And so valuing that, you know, valuing those relationships and also knowing, you know, that um, time is finite can be a helpful construct for, you know, making better choices of how you spend your time.
1: One of the things that we hear almost from the time that we're old enough to speak is that money doesn't buy happiness. And one of the things that I've frequently heard is that a lot of the people who have said that over the years never had uh, a difficult time finding enough money to pay their rent or their mortgage or take their child to the doctor. There are all sorts of everyday stresses in life that money can alleviate. So, maybe you don't need to have a hundred million dollars to be happy, but I would imagine if you're living at the poverty level, you might have a more of a daily struggle with unhappiness than someone that's comfortably in the middle class. What does your research suggest about the role of money and its relation to happiness?
0: Yeah. So it's funny that you bring this up. Actually, this research came out after the book. Um, There's some famous researchers that have looked at this. I think First and foremost, most psychologists in this area would suggest, you know, most people are familiar with Maslow's Maslow's Triangle. You need to get to a certain level, right? It's clear that, um, you know, in replicatable science, if you don't have safety needs met, right, if you don't have the money to buy a home, if you're, you know, devoid of food and starving, you feel like uh, your immediate family is at risk then having money is certainly going to increase your happiness up until a a certain point. Um, That was the prevailing wisdom, uh, and some of this came from a famous behavioral scientist named Cotterman. Cotterman and a gentleman by the name of Matthew Killingsworth, uh, he started at Harvard now, I believe he's at um, Pennsylvania. Uh, They they re-challenged the data on this, and it's clear that money does, you know, even though it has diminishing returns, generally does make people Happier. So you're exactly right. I mean, I think to some degree, you know, as long as you don't move the goalposts, you can circumvent some of the need for having, you know, uh, financial measures to make you happy. But the idea that money doesn't make us happy, I think, is slowly but surely being proven to be somewhat Mm -hmm. untrue
1: you I appreciate you being so generous with your time there are a couple other no, areas no that I want to I pick your brain on and then uh, then I'll, I'll let you get some sleep one of the <laughs> things that uh, that I uh, find that I struggle with at times is, you know, I have a pretty, I have nocturnal hours during the week and uh, on the weekend, a lot of times it just feels like I have way too many social obligations, familial obligations, too many people that want to go to lunch or go to dinner or go to drinks, all things that I enjoy with people that I enjoy doing them with, but sometimes it just feels so overwhelming. It honestly feels like a second job to try and Uh meet all these social obligations i'm wondering if that's something that uh that your research has indicated and your experiences have indicated could actually be a a problem when it comes to uh happiness unhappiness stress etc
0: yeah it's clear that you know variability and, and variety is clearly is the spice of life but once you start to feel over-prescribed and it gets stressful and you feel like you're losing control over your schedule, it certainly starts to fall off a cliff. So each person's quote-unquote Goldilocks spot is going to be different. But if you feel like you're just jumping from one activity to the other so that you can't fully be present, you know, um, with the people that you do enjoy your time with, then it can become problematic. So, you know, I think each person is going to develop their own strategy. But if you're feeling overwhelmed by obligation, trying to find strategies to scale that back so that, you know, you're doing it at a cadence that's comfortable and enjoyable does become important. Because, again, it goes back to what we started with. Right. If you are doing it, you know, at such a cadence that eventually you get burnt out and you don't even want to see anybody on the weekends because it just has become such an unenjoyable activity for you then that's a self-defeating sort of strategy, right? So figuring out what works for you so that you can share your time with all these wonderful people, you know, isn't just a short-term strategy. It's something that helps you play that long game.
1: One of the things that you emphasize in the book is the importance of savoring every moment, and sometimes it's easy to look back through the prism of nostalgia at different points in your professional life, your family life, your uh, your social life, and say, oh, those were the good old days. I wish I had realized them at the time. What advice can you give people, Mike, about how they can savor a moment and how they can understand that what they're experiencing now, those really are the good old days?
0: Yeah, I think it's being where your feet are, right? And so there's benefits in both. One is we don't want to live in the past, right? But they can certainly play a vital role by providing us artifacts for what we should be doing now. So oftentimes if you find yourself kind of stuck in – you know, this was so much fun, how could you recreate it in a way that's appropriate for the age you are now, with potentially the people that were, you know, part of that memory so that you can relive it. So I think the main thing is not trying to completely replicate the past, because oftentimes, that can be a recipe for disaster. You know, in the book, I unpacked because of this injury, like, you know, the Boston Marathon was just this weekend, right? And I've, it was something I've always wanted to do, because it's always around my birthday. But I don't ruminate on that, because that would pull me down right because it's just not possible but i do look back at those experiences and say okay they were really enjoyable how can i recreate them in a way that's going to bring me joy today and so what i do are these fun run 5ks with my daughter we just did one you know where um, it was kind of like dolly you know that indian festival where they throw color dust at you and so by the end of the 5k you know we look like tie-dye shirts covered head to toe and it was amazing so how can you look at things That really do light you up from the past and potentially use those as tools for recreating that now in the present. And especially if it involves, you know, loved ones that you want to be with. for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org.
1: You also spend a little bit of time offering strategies on how you can have enjoyment after the moment, after the vacation is over, after the fun night uh, with your friends is over, after the wedding is over. How can you still get some enjoyment after that?
0: Yeah, and so it goes, you know, it's a good uh, piggyback off of what we just described. You know, pull some artifacts from whatever event it was that you definitely want to remember. So for some, you know, that might be creating a scrapbook. For others, it could be just creating prompts in your calendar that remind you a year from now so you can look back and potentially regroup with the people that you did it with or if it was your family, look at those photos. And it's a one-two punch. One, it allows us to expand the amount of time time that we're getting value from that fun experience, but oftentimes it's also the nudge to get that, you know, a similar experience back on our calendar. So it goes Mm. back to creating that upward spiral rather than that downward spiral of rumination when we're just thinking about all the fun that we're not having, right? So once we get in that savoring state, we're like, wait, you know, when I do the thing, I actually have fun. And then oftentimes, you know, again, it can be a prompt to you know, I want to do that again. And so you reach out to those fun friends that you had that good time with and and you you set it up so that it happens again.
1: You also spend a little bit of time offering strategies on how you can have enjoyment after the moment, after the vacation is over, after the fun night uh, with your friends is over, after the wedding is over. How can you still get some enjoyment after that?
0: Yeah, and so it goes, you know, it's a good, Piggyback off of what we just described, you know, pull some artifacts from whatever event it was that you definitely want to remember. So, for some, you know, that might be creating a scrapbook. For others, it could be just creating prompts in your calendar that remind you a year from now so you can look back and potentially regroup with the people that you did it with, or if it was your family, look at those photos. And it's a one two punch. One, it allows us to expand the amount of time. Time that we're getting value from that fun experience but oftentimes it's also the nudge to get that you know a similar experience back on our calendar so it goes back to creating that upward spiral rather than that downward spiral of a rumination when we're just thinking about all the fun that we're not having right so once we get in that savoring state we're like wait you know when i do the thing i actually have fun and then oftentimes you know, again, it can be a prompt to, you know, I want to do that again. And so you reach out to those fun friends that you had that good time with and and you, you set it up so that it happens again.
1: You've got to come back because there's a lot of other issues that I want to, I want to get into with you. I'll, I'll end with this. I know today's your birthday. What are you doing for your birthday? And, um, what maybe give some other people that have upcoming birthdays, some birthday ideas.
0: Yeah. So I, uh, Celebrated a little bit early right now. I'm in Rochester on business, but um, we went Rochester, out to Rochester, Minnesota,
1: not New York, right? That's correct. Gotcha. Yep.
0: And uh, yeah, at the Mayo Clinic. And uh, we, uh, we went out to California. We saw family and friends, you know, we uh, recently moved to North Carolina. So we re- reconnected with a bunch of folks that we love and got to celebrate with them, got to see my parents. So I think, you know, using, uh, birthdays is, I'm taking this from Katie Milkman, who's another amazing behavioral scientist, but we call them temporal landmarks, right? Birthdays can be amazing excuses to get fun things on the calendar. You know, reach out to those fun friends that, you know, often create those opportunities for you to enjoy yourself. So if you feel kind of stuck, you know, look look to the people that you admire that you think are living a joyful life because they generally want to have fun with you. Um, or, you know, getting a big thing on the calendar. A lot of people use birthdays as an excuse, you know, to go run a marathon or, right. you know, go to an exotic place. Or maybe if, you know, you your money's strapped, find something, you know, local, especially if you live in a big city. You know, just using that as an excuse to find something to do can be, you know, that helpful nudge to get you out of the house and doing something fun.
1: Well, Mike Rucker, I want to encourage everybody to check out The Fun Habit, How the Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of things in this book that I think will make people think. Also, a lot of great things that uh, I think people will be able to implement in their own life uh, that will have a profound impact that don't exactly cost a fortune to change what they're going through. So thanks for writing it. Thanks for joining me on the radio.
0: Oh, my goodness. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Thank you, Mike Rucker. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. 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 This is the story of The One. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently